Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined by Bruce Farquharson of Scottish Fire and Rescue and we discuss the control of wildfires in Scotland. We also touch on Muirburn as a tool for responsible heather management and the benefits of having a fire action plan should disaster strike. Hi there, Bruce. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Good to see you this afternoon. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for coming on. We've had this uh, in the pipelines for a little while now, so it's uh, it's good to have a, a sit down chat with you. Bruce, can you get us started with a bit of an introduction as to, to who you are and the kind of work that you're involved in? Absolutely. So um, I'm Deputy Assistant Chief Officer Bruce Farkerson. My official role is Head of Training for the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service. Um, however, I am also the Wildfire Strategic Lead, which means that I oversee all aspects of the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service's wildfire response, um, all the policies and procedures and strategy around about that. And as part of that work, I have the the privilege of being the chair of the Scottish Wildfire Forum, which is a, a multi-agency group which comes together to try and further the, the cause of wildfire, wildfire prevention, wildfire awareness and a wildfire response across Scotland. And this job, it'll take you across Scotland or are you kind of geographically located in one place? No, I, I travel the, the length and breadth of Scotland on a regular basis and further afield. And just this week, I've been down in uh, Westminster speaking to them about topics to do with wildfire, been all around um, both the UK and Europe in relation to wildfire topics and subjects. And what's the reception when you give these kind of talks? I mean, are people fairly engaged with the issue of wildfires and, and fire management? I think it's fair to say that um, the interest and engagement is improving um, over certainly the last um, 10 years or so, we've seen an uptake in the um, the subject of wildfire. And obviously, after significant events, we get a huge uptake and interest in the subject of wildfire. So on the back of the significant fires we had just last year um, in the highlands at Cannock and Daviot, we've seen a lot of interest developed on the back of that. But we've also got a bill going through Parliament just now, uh, the Wildfire and Urban Management Bill, and that's um, generating a lot of interest both politically and from practitioners across all the various disciplines, whether it be gamekeepers, farmers or crofters. Well, no, like I say previously, it's it's great to have you on. Here at Thrill of the Hill, we quite often say that we discuss the hot topics that are impacting the farmed upland environment and, you know, fires will obviously be a very hot topic for an awful lot of people. Can you Give us a bit of a brief history of the the kind of prevalence of fires in Scotland. Are they becoming more common over time? So fires in Scotland, um, they've always been happening for centuries, uh, and um, it's a, a really useful and valid land management technique to use fire. Fires are a naturally occurring phenomenon. Um, we didn't invent fire, we found how to use fire. Um, but in Scotland, we don't have naturally occurring fires on our hillsides, they're always as a result of human action or omission. So we have the other impact of climate change, which is coming along, and, and that's um, slowly but surely beginning to show its, um, itself in the way we're dealing with fires, not so much in the frequency of fires, but the fires that we are seeing are becoming larger 
and they're becoming more challenging. So the, the fire behaviour that's being exhibited is becoming more and more akin to what is exhibited traditionally in the Mediterranean countries. And we have seen um, in the past few years fire behaviour that has been unheard of, um, including crown fires where the fire gets into the, the top canopy of, uh, of a forest or, or a stand of trees, um, and spotting fires, which although they are common, we usually see fires that are um, spread by embers flying off the front of the fire, landing tens of metres ahead of the fire and, uh, and starting their own small fires. In the last few, few years, we've seen that um, over hundreds of metres, which is a significant change and a, a significant challenge. So it wouldn't be accurate to say we're seeing more fires, but what is accurate to say is we're seeing larger and more challenging fires. And by and large, Bruce, what are the main causes of fires in Scotland? So as I, I kind of hinted at there, the, the, the three main um, causes of fire in Scotland, and I say this slightly flippantly, um, are men, women and children. And it's it's not a naturally occurring phenomenon in Scotland. Um, I'm pleased to say that the fires that we see in Scotland are overwhelmingly accidental, although we do have some that are set deliberately, maliciously, as well as some that are set deliberately with good intent, but then become out of control. But um, it tends to be well-intentioned, either recreational fires, um, for people having campfires or uh, a naked flame from a barbecue um, by people who are trying to manage vegetation using fire and the fire goes out of control. And I should say that's the minority of fires or um, or fires that are caused purely by accident, whether it be a hot part of an exhaust touching um, dry grass or heather or gorse or whether it be discarded smoking materials. And believe it or not, we do sometimes see um, the rays of the sun being magnified by discarded glass bottles and, and creating um, a, a hot spot, which if left long enough will begin to smoulder and smoke and, and um, over time ignite. So all these things are um, initiated by humans. They don't happen naturally, although in um, the continent, particularly further south in the Mediterranean regions, there is a phenomenon of dry lightning strikes where a lightning storm will happen without the presence of rain. Um, we haven't seen that in Scotland. In fact, we have very rarely seen it in the UK. Um, but in 2019, we did see that happen in the south coast of England. And climate change is likely to bring around um, weather systems that may well include dry lightning strikes. And how devastating can these fires be, particularly for the uplands here in Scotland? It's hard to accurately quantify how, just how devastating these fires can be, um, but it is safe to say that they are significantly problematic for the uplands, not just for the, um, the obvious impacts of the devastation to the, um, the wildlife and the flora and fauna of the areas, but to the rural communities as well. As well. And often the impacts aren't seen immediately. So you, you have the very dramatic um, orange flames and, and uh, heavy smoke plumes that can be seen um, from miles around and, and the smoke drifting across roads and into um, rural communities is, has an obvious impact. But the public health impact of that as well that can exacerbate existing conditions, respiratory problems in particular, can be a real challenge. Now, the landscape will recover from fire, but it can take years, if not decades, to recover fully. If the fire gets into the peat layers, however, it takes significantly longer and we can see the release of carbon into the atmosphere that's been stored for centuries, if not millennia. Uh, and it's fair to say that the, um, the carbon layers and the peat layers may never recover 
from fires that cause them to be involved. So there's a, a multi-factored impact. There's the flora and fauna um, that, that is obviously immediately destroyed. There's the nuisance factor of the smoke um, either blocking roads or, or drifting in communities, then there's a long-term impact of the health concerns and health issues that they can exacerbate or even cause. And then there's the issue of carbon released into the atmosphere. Um, and as we know, um, that that then brings about an increase in the chance of climate change and then we, we start the cycle again. So, yeah, the impact is devastating and um, all fires of all sizes contribute to that, but in particular the most significant fires um, can really, really increase the rate of carbon released. So we had one fire in 2019 in Murray uh, near Aberlour, that, um, while the duration of that fire was burning, it doubled the UK's carbon emissions. So a significant amount. And this is maybe a, a silly question, but Bruce, w- when fires do happen, how do you find, in your experience, farmers respond to them? Is is the immediate action to, to get in touch with yourselves or, you know, by and large, are, are, farmers, um, are farmers trying to put them out themselves? Or, uh, you know, is there a danger that they're putting themselves at risk? Would you prefer them to get in touch with yourselves? So that's a really interesting question, and we see a mix of responses. Um, so if it's a fire that the farmer has started for a land management purpose, then very often um, we will never be called because they will control that fire extremely well and they'll extinguish that fire without incident. However, in some rare occasions, the fire, um, either because of change in wind direction or um, a fuel type that behaves in a more extreme way than expected we will see those fires go out of control and the farmers i think are pretty good at understanding this is now beyond what we can do and they always give us a phone they usually have called us anyway to tell us they're having a wildfire or a a, a muir burn and um, they'll be asked to phone us either if something goes untoward or once they are finished so that we can respond accordingly so when we do get called um the when these situations go out of the farmer's control we come along and um I think it's also fair to say the farmers are a huge source of support to us, um, either by providing heavy equipment to cut fire breaks, by helping us transport our equipment from point A to point B, or for simply giving us good quality information about um, access roads in, water supplies, um, areas that we should be aware of, either because it's a risk to us or it's something that needs protected, whether it be um, a water course or um, a rare species or uh, livestock. So they are a huge support to us, and we very rarely see anything other than that when we get called out to these fires. And Bruce, when... You mentioned Muir Burn there, so we'll stick on the topic of controlled fire then. In in terms of controlling fire, what, what's the correct way of undertaking a, a Muir Burn from, from your perspective? So um, there is obviously the Muir Burn Code, which lays out very clearly um, a, a user's guide for how to conduct a Muir Burn, everything from the planning, the notification, the carrying out and the uh, and the, the restrictions involved with Muir Burn. And that code's under review at the moment. Um, but when people carry out Muir Burn, first of all, they need to remember there is a season in which you should be doing Muir Burn and you shouldn't be burning outside of that season. And that goes from October to April, roughly. Um, they should make sure that where they're having the fire is safe, that there is a... a either a natural break that will stop the fire or a built break that they have put in place to stop the fire getting out of control, that they've got enough um, resource to deal safely with the fire, um, people and equipment, and that the fire is managed in a very safe way and not left to burn uncontrolled. And they should always be 
um, actively monitored and not just left to to either burn themselves out or uh, or they'll come back and see how it's going in a few hours. And I should say that's that's really the case. Um, we do see a very responsible approach that's taken. But I guess the rule of thumb is make sure that the area is safe, that there are no contraindications for burning, whether it be um, a, a, a nesting bird site or whether it be a, a, um, a specific peak depth for which you shouldn't burn, that they've got the correct resource to deal with the fire, both to light it and extinguish it. And most importantly, everybody involved remains safe throughout the entire operation. And I am pleased to report that um, farmers, gamekeepers and crofters um, do their very best to abide by those guidelines and, and the information that's contained within the Muir Burn Code. We do get some who, unfortunately, either for one reason or another, find that difficult um, and uh, or, or perhaps just aren't aware of the, the Muir Burn Code. Um, but the vast majority of fires that are lit for the purpose of managing vegetation have done so extremely well. And from the perspective of Scottish Fire and Rescue, I mean, how available is the information with regards to a particular site made available to, to you guys? I mean, you mentioned breeding birds there, you mentioned peat depth. Is that kind of information readily available for, for your team? Um, unfortunately not. So one of the asks that we have for um, for landowners and land managers is to have a pre-prepared fire plan. And that fire plan will include... Um, information on access points, uh, infrastructure such as roadways, forest roadways, turning circles, water supplies, uh, critical national infrastructure, uh, risks, all, all that stuff that would be useful to the incident commander to know so they can make good decisions. In relation to peak depth and um, sites of special scientific interest or um, nesting bird areas, that's the sort of information that is useful for the, um, the person planning the Muir burn so they can plan when and where they're going to do that burn effectively and safely. Um, whilst it's of interest to the incident commander from the fire service perspective, they may not feature um, in the decision-making process because our, uh, our focus will be slightly different than somebody's laying a fire for a land management technique. Our interest is putting that fire out as quickly and safely as possible. Um, so it's a fire plan is something we would really like all landowners to prepare and have ready should an incident happen that they can pass to the incident commander and uh, that will allow the incident commander to make good, well-informed decisions. And Bruce, when a fire does get out of control, I mean, what happens from the perspective of Scottish Fire and Rescue? I mean, how do you guys typically find out about it and how, how do you respond? So we, we hear in the traditional way, somebody will dial 999 and uh, unless there's a fire and we will um, always respond to a fire that we cannot confirm is under control. So when somebody is doing your burn, as I said earlier, they will um, usually phone us up and tell us having a fire. If we then get a subsequent report of a fire in that area, we'll recontact that person and say, is this you? Is this fire that's been reported your fire? If we cannot confirm that is the case, then we will mobilise and we have a predetermined attendance to wildfires that sends an appropriate immediate attack. The first appliances that arrive will do an initial assessment of the situation and decide at that point whether they need more resources to be sent on. And when we see our largest fires, uh, so the, the one last year at Cannach, we saw mobilisation. Cannach is... Um, just to the southwest of Inverness. We saw mobilisations um, across the whole of Scotland to support the incident coming from as far afield as Motherwell to support that incident, which lasted for um, 
well, it slowed down for weeks afterwards, but the, the peak of activity lasted um, five to six days. So we will respond in whatever weight of response is required from wherever in the country we can um, we need to mobilise from. And this is one of the, the benefits of having a Scottish fire service and not individual um, local authority fire services. Our draw on resources is now um, eight times more than it used to be, so we can pull upon the resource of the whole country. And we will resource that 24-7 until the fire is safe to be handed back to the landowner. Um, and at that point of handover, handover, we will make sure that all of the risks that exist and all of the considerations that need to be thought through are um, fully explained to the landowner. We will physically sign a document that says this is now yours. But after that document is signed, if the farmer at any point thinks, actually, no, I'm still needing some help here, there are, of course, completely free to phone us on uh, 999 again, and we will respond as accordingly um, to deal with that situation. And how many people are likely to respond to a fire in any given time? I mean, you mentioned there, you've obviously got quite a, a robust network of, of different offices and, and different different officers, um, but how many people will typically respond to a fire? It really depends on the size of the fire. Um, so for uh, um the initial report to a wildfire, we all send two appliances, which will uh, have uh, a team of um, approximately nine people will turn out initially. But at Canach, we had um, over 150 people on the ground. And, and that's just our own people. We also had support from um, various different land management sectors coming to help us with that incident. So it is fair to say you can have everything from sort of a dozen people turning up to an incident all the way up to hundreds of people, depending on the size, location, um, hazards. So it might be an extremely large fire, but we choose not to throw a huge weight of resource at it if it's not going to cause too much of an issue. But it might actually be a significantly smaller fire, but we put a massive resource to it because of its location. So there are a number of factors that will help us decide how we're going to support um, our operation. And wildfires don't tend to happen in isolation. The conditions that give rise to a wildfire generally happen in quite a large geographical area. So when we get one fire, we're likely to get more. We've got to think about the ongoing um, response to those fires, but also how we do our business as usual activity, um, because cars will still crash, um, fires will still happen in homes, and we need to make sure that we're keeping all of the communities of Scotland safe while still responding to these significantly large incidents. And Bruce, you mentioned the Muirburn Code earlier on. What other kind of legislation is there in place around the issue of fire and fire management in Scotland that people should be aware of? So this is where it becomes very complicated very quickly. There, there are a huge number of pieces of legislation that um, that talk about fire, um, going all the way back to the Health Farming Act from the 1940s um, and up to and including antisocial behaviour laws and criminal laws. So there, there is a huge raft of legislation that covers uh, both the act of lighting a fire for land management purpose all the way to the um, criminal damage and nuisance behaviour uh, and nuisance factor that a fire can cause. Uh, so it, it, that's a, quite a long list and quite a, a wide-ranging list of documents. However, if if people follow the Muirburn Code, it's distilled all of that good information, all of the guidance, all of the best practice into one document and is a very simple to use and useful document to adhere to if you are using it as a land management practice. The other document I would point to for those that are not land managers but are looking to use the countryside in a recreational manner would be Scotland's Outdoor Access Code, which again gives good information on if you do want to have a fire, how to do that safely and where to do that safely. And that is um, 
added to by local bylaws. So, for example, in the Cairngorms National Park Authority area, they will have um, areas where fires are permitted and where fires are not permitted. And again, that will be compounded by the welfare danger assessment in place at that time. They may have um, a ban on all naked flames or they may have fires that are permitted. So, it, as I said, it becomes quite complicated quite quickly. But the Muirburn Code and the Scottish Outdoor Access Code are the two documents I would point people towards. Perfect, and and if they are if they are available, we will make them available in the uh, in the show notes for this this podcast episode. So no, thanks for that. Can I just ask? You mentioned fire action plans earlier on. There, what proportion of farmers in Scotland would you say have one of these in place? Does it tend to focus on those farmers who might be undertaking your burn, or do you find that the other farmers do have them? Um, unfortunately, they're quite rare, and it tends to be um, the either larger farms or estates that have them. Um, we would encourage all farms and estates to have a fire action plan uh, and, and we can supply a template if that would be of use. Um, there is no requirement for a standard consistent um, format across the country, but it obviously helps us if there is one. Um, and actually we are um, developing something with Forest and Land Scotland, which we will hope to use as an exemplar for for the whole of the country. Um, but unfortunately, these fire action plans tend to be quite rare. Um, they, they should be shared with the fire service, um, but in that itself creates a problem because under the GDPR, we need to make sure they're accurate and up to date. So we reach out on an annual basis to make sure that information is accurate and up to date. And if we don't receive a positive reply, we are legally obliged to dispose of that information. Um, so it's, uh, it's something we would ask the fire that farmers put together and they keep maintained and uh, share with us on an annual basis. Bruce, we've talked a little bit about wildfires. We've talked a little bit about controlled burning. With regards, these are obviously two different, entirely different kinds of of fires. Um, But when you guys get called out to them, is, are the principles the same with, with regards to what you're hoping to achieve on site or, or is there a differentiation to be made there? Absolutely. So Muirburn uh, and wildfire are often um, crossed over in people's thinking as being one and the same thing, but actually they're, they're very different. And the analogy I would use to um, highlight why they're different or how I see them as different is that if we focus on a kitchen and say that cooking with gas is Muirburn, versus an explosion in a gas refinery being wildfire. The two are gas burning, but one is very controlled for a purpose and is being used as a tool, and the other is an uncontrolled, um, hazardous, challenging situation. And it's exactly the same with muir burning, which is a tool used by the land management sector to manage vegetation for one reason or another versus an uncontrolled, extremely challenging, extremely dangerous situation, which is wildfire. And unfortunately, because people conflate the two in their head, we often see people try to um, support at a wildfire under the misunderstanding that it is a benign fire in the same way they might have a bonfire in their garden. It's not. It's an extremely challenging situation for lots of reasons, which is why um, we are extremely cautious about letting people actually get involved in firefighting at wildfires. We absolutely welcome support and assistance at a fire, but we will always err on the side of safety because the fire service are responsible for everybody's health and safety at any incident. So we may may well um, keep people to do tasks such as moving um, people or equipment from A to B um, and creating a logistics supply line, maybe getting water, 
rather than actually fighting the fire, which we have trained, equipped uh, firefighters to do. So the two are very different. Um, wildfire um, is becoming a much more challenging situation. As I said earlier, the fire behaviour we're seeing is extreme to the point where we will often withdraw our own highly trained and well-equipped personnel because the danger is too high, um, whereas Muirburn is something that is an extremely effective land management technique and done extremely well by people that are practised in doing it. I would encourage if MD is doing Muirburn um, to, to seek some training. And there, there is an excellent training package available to help people with the practice of your burning. And that's not just people who are new to that practice. It's for everybody, whether you've been doing it for decades or not, everybody can do with a little bit of a refresher and an upskill. So I would encourage people to seek out that um, training package. And Bruce, you've just mentioned something that kind of occurred to me earlier on and I didn't want to derail the conversation but this makes perfect sense now you, you talked about the availability of water there w what is that like site to site I mean obviously I mean you you will presumably come with some water supply yourself but you know are you very much at the mercy of the kind of geographical location what happens if you need water when you're on site yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting subject, um, believe it or not. So you're, you're quite right. All of our appliances carry um, 1.8 tonnes of water, 1,800 litres, and they will um, deploy that to an incident. And we have uh, water bowsers and tankers that we can bring to the incident, but we also have the ability to lift water from any open water source, whether that be um, a burn, a loch, um, or, or, or even, believe it or not, um, people's ponds and their gardens, you know, we can take water from anywhere. Now, in a town, we have um, street hydrants that we can lift water off of the, the mains. They're not so readily available in the countryside. Um, so we really value good quality information from the, the locals to help us know where water is. However, um, it is entirely possible to deal with the wildfire without using water at all. And it's a, an extremely... Um, good technique, but it can be quite challenging, whereby um, we get ahead of the fire and create a fire break and, um, and let the fire come to that and burn itself out rather than um, having to put water on it. We will still um, apply water to uh, to do mop-up and create any uh, deal with any smouldering points, but um, water is a challenge, so we're having to think about ways of dealing with the fire without water. Uh, and, and I was fortunate enough to go on a training course um, in the... Uh, the north of Spain, and we burnt for an entire day um, at the top of a mountain range and didn't use a single drop of water. So it is possible, um, but it takes an awful lot of um, training and expertise to do so. So we absolutely welcome when uh, farmers, gamekeepers, crofters, anybody from local area can point us in the direction of a water supply that we can use to, to, um, to help with the fire out. Is there anything, Bruce, that people should know with regards to providing access for vehicles and equipment from, from the, the fire and rescue team? Absolutely. So um, our vehicles are not lightweight. Um, the, the traditional fire appliance weighs roughly 18 tonnes. Um, we have um, a, a, a new range of vehicles that we're introducing as part of our welfare strategy, which are um, lightweight. They're um, 4x4 pickup type vehicles that um, tow an all-terrain vehicle, so they are much more lightweight and able to get further into the countryside than, than we've been able to do previously. Um, but we need, um, if we're going to be bringing our appliances in, we need um, good quality 
uh, access, we need turning circles, um, we need to know where weak bridges are, for example. Uh, and if there is a single way in and a single way out, it's a big loop, that might present us a challenge, particularly if the road becomes um, uh, a little bit less usable in its length. So um, if people are um, think about access for the for the fire service. Think about access for a lorry rather than access for a, a, a Land Rover and you don't go far wrong. And Bruce, is there anything else that uh, that you can think of that farmers and landowners should be made aware of with regards to, to fire management? Is there anything that, that I've missed that, uh, that maybe you think is very obvious? So I, th- I think um, a point that's worthy of note is that fire is... Uh, an excellent slave, but a terrible master. So we need to be aware that if we're using fire that at any moment it's seeking to take control of the situation and um, an escape from the control measures that are put in place. So farmers need to be aware of that and be aware that the weather can change very quickly and the fuel can change very quickly and suddenly a fire that was very controllable is now out of control. I'd also like to dispel the myth that white smoke is safe smoke. Um, a lot of people do believe that um, smoke from grass or heather or gorse is safe because it's white. Um, new research is, is highlighting that it's as bad as the smoke that you'll find in a house fire, um, the, the heavy black smoke that you'll get from traditional industrial incidents. And no smoke should be considered as safe. Um, it's extremely dangerous and contains lots and lots of nasty chemicals. And the only difference between white smoke and black smoke is the colour. So... People working in smoke need to be aware that they're not doing their health any good at all and there can be long-term effects. And finally, if people are using fire, my ask would be um, that they let us know, that they tell us when and where they're going to be having a fire and they let us know when that fire is out. That way, if um, we get a call to that area, we can either confirm that it is a controlled fire and not respond, or if we um, are called to that area and we know there is no fan that will respond accordingly and that will reduce the number of um, false alarms that we get during your burn season. Now I should say farmers are very good at letting us know and it tends to be the um, uneducated public that sees smoke rising in the hillside that give us a call but if we haven't had that pre-warning from the farmer that they are burning in that area and we can't confirm that it is a controlled fire then we will always send an, um, a response. Um, so other, other than that, I think um, we've covered an awful lot of topics there and an awful lot of information, uh, and, and hopefully that's been of use. No, absolutely. I mean, this, this has been really good. It's a it's not a topic that we've ever touched on on the podcast and, and you know, hugely relevant to an awful lot of our, our listeners. So I do hope that they've, they've taken something from this. Um, any chance I, I can just get some final thoughts and, uh, and we'll close the, uh, bring the podcast to, to a close? Absolutely. So, um, as I've said, um, your burn is uh, an excellent land management technique. It's not the only one. There are other land management techniques such as cutting or or grazing or even variegated planting. Um, There are longer term techniques such as re-wetting. But in my experience and my view is that your burn is the most effective for managing vegetation. But it is something that needs to be done carefully, thoughtfully in accordance with the Muirburn Code and ideally by people that have had training in how to do it. The fire service should always be told when it's going to happen and there should always be a fire plan created just in case we have to respond to a wildfire. And the most important thing that everybody should always have at the forefront of their thinking when they're using fire is the safety of them and the people that are working alongside them. That's our number one priority and that will be what informs our decision making at an incident. 
you know, people have that in their thinking that it helps us an awful lot and is likely to lead to safer practice. So I am delighted to be able to speak about welfare and to um, to help people to understand the challenges that welfare present. But I'm also as delighted to talk about Muirburn in a way that is constructive and positive because often Muirburn is seen as the root of all evil when it comes to landscape management. And actually, it's an extremely effective tool when done correctly. Brilliant. Well, Bruce, I normally finish the podcast asking people how do they get in touch. Um, we will make the contact information for Scottish Fire and Rescue available um, in the show notes. But uh, on behalf of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, thank you very much for, uh, for your time this afternoon. It's been really good to talk to you. Thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed that. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.